everybody. Melissa McKenzie here with the Spectacle Podcast and publisher of The American Spectator. And usually joining me, we have Scott McKay. But right now he is on deadline for his book about Barack Obama. And he's being hounded by his publisher as uh, they want to do. They want to get this book out there and finished. And so he's working feverishly to get that done. So we'll let you know. You guys will be some of the first people to know when that book is finished and then where you can get your hands on it. In the meantime, what I would encourage you to do, there's Scott's book, The Revivalist Manifesto, which you can get everywhere, but also Bob Tyrrell, R. Emmett Tyrrell Jr., founder of The American Spectator, has finished his memoirs of sorts, and you can pre-order them right now on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and let me just get the actual name of it. Uh, I had it there for a minute and I think I've lost it. Um, how do we get out of here is what the, is what the book is called. It's funny. The, some of the stories that we've heard in the past, Bob actually experienced. Um, I really highly recommend that you order this book. It will give you an insight into American politics for over 50 years. And um, Bob's seen it all. He's been on the front lines and he has some very funny stories about particular people whose names you'll know. So order that on Barnes and Noble or Amazon. How do we get out of here by uh, R.M. Terrell Jr. You'll love it. Anyway, so that's coming out in the fall. It'll be timed close to, it's about a month before uh, our gala, which will be in October. So I hope that you can join us there. But this book, um, if we can get pre-orders, that helps him, that helps uh, the publisher too. So I really encourage you to order it. Uh, you're going to love it. So today, without Scott, I am kind of like unbridled. I can just say what I want. And so... I've had some thoughts. I'm going to start though with something that we touched on in the past, but I really want to talk about now because of what uh, the recent episode. So we had talked about The Last of Us before, but not in great detail. I'd like to talk about it more now because it is so emblematic of so many problems in Hollywood. First, the good. The good is, is that the production values are amazing. The um, story is relatively interesting. It's not the same old kind of zombie tale where you have these kind of shambling, mindless people uh, running around. No, there's different kinds of zombies. It's scientifically plausible, if impossible right now, but which may, gives it a scary edge. And so this whole story, this post-apocalyptic story, it's interesting. Uh, but mostly I think it's baloney. There's a couple things uh, that have uh, made this story kind of impossible. And it bothers me. Somebody has told me at one point that I should write a a uh, zombie story the way I think it should be written because I have so many ideas because I'm caught up in certain scientific impossibilities and human nature impossibilities that always seem to drive these stories. For example, 
the number one thing people do in a time of crisis like this is depending on the social bonds where they're at, they will start to rely upon one another. In this story, like so many others, there's none of that. And where you do see it, things fall apart fairly quickly. And so like that seems unrealistic to me. The other thing that seems unrealistic to me is the that it was so total and complete and all consuming all at once. I don't think it would work out that sort of way. And the and finally the other thing that just bothers me about this is that humans are going to kill these things. You know, these are not intelligent beings. Intelligence even if they get robots they're going to start mowing down these stupid uh zombies fairly quickly, I would think. Um, and it's not going to be the type of thing where everybody gets overrun that quickly. I could be wrong, but it just seems strange to me. And then for it to be 20 years later and these things still existing and not completely wiped out seems weird. Okay. That's just my two cents on that. Okay. So I hit Microsoft issues, everybody, or uh, my microphone issues. Anyway, so so that the improbabilities of some of these things are problems with zombie stories generally. Specifically, though, this this um, zombie story, The Last of Us, is a woke, miserable BS show. I was patient with it at first, but I have lost patience with it now. It is just more propaganda. Basically, the short set up based on the vi video uh, game, which I've never played and have never seen. But my kid recognizes everything all the way through it because it's fairly accurate depiction of what happened in the in the video game. And you have these vignettes. From a narrative narrative standpoint, the whole show seems very uh, uh, choppy to say the least. But the bigger problem with it is it is not only the narrative choppy, it's unrealistic within the choppiness. So you have these FEDRA people who are the government agencies keeping these camps together and keeping the zombies out. Um, they're fairly totalitarian, but keeping a lid on the populace and being kind of cruel in certain places, being immoral and using their absolute authority, kind of like the UN blue hats and uh, all over the world, uh, harming the local people. And they've put, put up with it for years. And so like we go to one city this last week or a week ago, and it was Kansas city in the video game. I, from what I understand, it was Pittsburgh doesn't matter. The idea was is that the people took over the federal camp, federal camp, killed all the feds in horrible malicious ways and uh don't have the full information and are vicious killers themselves. They've lost all morality and are crazy while being kind of freedom fighters. So the people who are for freedom this firefly movement are actually also villains and worse villains than the government. The government's just doing the best that they can in a bad situation. Don't you know the local people who want freedom are crazy cultists. Okay. That's how they're portrayed. And then when they do get power, like we see in Kansas city, they're bloodthirsty and bent on revenge 
and the dissolution of society happens apace. So anybody for freedom, if they're flying a, a, an American flag, watch out. Um, they're bad people. And so the other thing, of course, is the main protagonist. So the the main protagonist is who is this um, teenager uh, who is immune somehow from these zombies. Well, it turns out it's not enough for her to be a cute innocent looking girl, which is what she is in the video game. In this show, she's kind of an ugly looking kid who is uh, a lesbian. And so in this last episode, we see a teenage girl who's 15 or so, 14, 15, making out with this other teenage girl who's 17, right before the zombie kills him or kills one of them. So this... <laughs> So the good people are lesbians, the good the good protagonists. The bad people are the average citizens like in Kansas City. Then we have the um whole episode where this uh forget the improbability or unlikelihood of this happening. So this prepper, very, very conservative libertarian type who has his whole house decked out, prepared for just this sort of thing, calls the government New World Order F-bombs and is prepared for you know, the apocalypse in the way that nobody else in America is. And also he's gay. And also in one of his traps set around his property, a gay man <laughs> happens to fall in. And they live happily ever after. It strains, strains credulity, just that. But also it's so on the nose, it's painful. And so unlikely, it's painful. Now, I happen to know, because I've been in the conservative libertarian movement for years, a fair number of libertarian gay people Uh but they, they don't make an overwhelming part of the population. And so for them to be a feature in this story is interesting to say the least. But here we are establishing a pattern that they're the good guys in all of this. Then in this, uh, another recent episode, we go out West because the main character is seeking, trying to find his, uh, brother, and we have found a commune, a communist group flying the American flag, happily watching old movies because they got their electricity back. Again, it, it's nonsensical. First off, the, what happens in a communist regime is what happened to the Puritans when they came to America, which is starvation because nobody works because they're waiting for somebody else to work. It does not work. Even amongst small groups, private property trade exists. And this little slice of utopia out in the middle of nowhere, I guess, Wyoming, uh, is a communist paradise, evidently. Everywhere, uh, there's no 
normal civil society reestablished anywhere. And this is 20 years after the zombie apocalypse. It's just, it's crazy. It's unrealistic. It's woke. And it's, I am an, after this last episode, annoyed. Nothing feels real because nothing is real. No one part of any of this show would even happen. Substitute um, crazy people. Just forget the, the being zombies, but just crazed people in place of the zombies. None of what has happened so far would happen. And so... I think that fantasy, sci-fi, all of that, it's great. I love it. In fact, I read a ton of it. It has to be grounded in some sort of understanding of human nature and reality for it to work. And in this case, none of it does. However, the sets are gorgeous and the special effects are great. And when the zombies do swarm, which they did uh, in one of the most recent episodes, it's pretty cool to watch. But other than that, it's kind of eh. And so, you know, let's see. The, uh, oh, oh, and the final thing, I just, I, I wrote a list because there's so many crazy things. Everywhere, whether it was with Fedra, the the resistant fireflies, the commune, the the group of people who overthrew the feds in Kansas City, all led by women. The likelihood of that happening in Slim, Nun, and Zilch. When you are in a society based entirely on power, which is what a post-apocalyptic system would be, you're seeking strength, physical strength. Physical strength will matter. Being able to fix physical things will matter. Women are generally not good at that. That, that I'm not saying that all women, but most women go through into helping professions or become doctors or, or lawyers or the softer professions. They're not out there turning a wrench. And there's reasons for that. They take men take more risks. Women have children that kind of filters things out. And in more educated societies, which the United States is all throughout Europe, it is women tend to filter towards more feminine jobs. It's not the opposite. You would think, oh, in more egalitarian societies, women would go towards more manly work. No, it doesn't work that way. When women have more choice, they choose more uh, stereotypically feminine work. And that would be true. In a post-apocalyptic world, you're not having women run every single uh subset of society everywhere. It just, it wouldn't happen. Whoever's the strongest and whoever can rally the troops will end up in leadership positions. So this is just, anyway, it's foolishness and it's annoying. Um, so let's see. All right. Finally, and I'm talking about this poor girl who's on this show. They cast this girl, I guess she was in Game of Thrones too, and she's 18 years old. And they had to probably go over to Europe to find someone who did, hadn't had their teeth fixed because Americans get that done now really young. And I, I would just like to say that 
we seem to be in a dichotomized world when it comes to cultural expectations of beauty. So on the one hand, we have this kind of insanity where women are young, beautiful women are getting like, uh, one of the trends is, is getting their buckle fat removed from their face. And that makes them look like sunken, their cheeks are sunken. And this um, ideal beauty I get uh, of beauty is to have, you know, um, high cheekbones and, you know, a sallow um, jawline. I don't know. It's going to make them look a hundred years old in about 10 years. I don't know why women would do this, but they're doing it. And so you have this kind of really hyper surgically enhanced beauty on the one hand. And then we're supposed to look at Lizzo, um, who's a beautiful girl. She's just overweight or like this, you know, this little girl on uh, Last of Us and on and on uh, or Sam Smith on the cover of whatever looking disgusting. This is the new beauty. And we're supposed to be okay with ugliness as beauty. Frankly, I'm tired of it. It is not useful somewhere between the TikTok filters that make uh, women without makeup look like supermodels and, and the, um, you know, promoting ugliness as fitness, there is a balance. And I just don't understand why we can't go back to uh, just a natural natural aging and natural uh, definitions of beauty. We all know it when we see it. It's kind of like um, the Supreme Court, you know, what is porn? Well, I know it when I see it. Well, it's kind of like, we all know beauty when we see it. Children know beauty. The interesting thing, they've done studies on babies. Babies will look at beautiful faces longer than ugly faces. They recognize as the difference between beautiful faces. They recognize their own mother's face. They recognize how long her hair is and if it changes. Babies know beauty. And somehow we as adults are supposed to pretend that beauty doesn't exist or isn't important. So somewhere between this idealized kind of thing that's impossible to obtain and then straight up ugliness, I think we need to get back to normal. One of the reasons I really loved uh, as a cultural um, piece, The Godfather was the way they portrayed um, The Godfather's wife was a normal aged um, Italian woman. She was, she was beautiful, but she was older and filled out. She had all these children and she was joyful, surrounded by her kids and grandkids. And it was normal. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie, everywhere, everything all at once, I think everything everywhere, all at once. I think I said it in order that time. Um, she has not used fillers and that sort of thing and has a natural looking, beautiful face. Anyway, I'm not here to cast aspersions against people who are using, uh, fillers or Botox or whatever, but I do think that we are a little schizophrenic in society right now about what how we talk about these things, where we uh, ignore the truth, like The Last of Us does, and we're supposed to pretend that certain things would happen that won't. We're supposed to pretend that ugly people are not ugly and are beautiful. We're supp supposed to pretend 
someone like David Hogg, who's at Harvard, is smart when he's stupid and couldn't get into a community college back in Florida. We're supposed to pretend all of these things and not say them and then not see things with our own eyes. And it creates a kind of technological dystopia that we're living in where people can't say the truth and can't even see it. So anyway, I wanted to talk about this because Hollywood has keeps having opportunities to do great things and to speak to all the people. And consistently, they choose to uh, make conservatives, caricatures, bloodthirsty, insane animals, and the you know leftist sexual politics, the uh, deified people. And I'm not saying that there isn't, you know people of every sexual persuasion out there on both sides of the spectrum. But I do know that this kind of uh, distortion is just unrealistic and it's just uh, limited and annoying. Also, uh, Last of Us had no churches. So people cease to worship. That's not the case. Usually when people are under more stress, they go out of their way to seek God because they need comfort. And none of that is happening either. So th this is just kind of a strange show. I wouldn't recommend it. Don't let your kids watch it. It's just pro more propaganda. And it, and I guess what feels so frustrating is it could have been really gr much better. And all of the good things about it get lost in this kind of woke baloney. And so just like so much of Hollywood, don't trust it. It's just junk and it's unnecessary. All right. So, you know, our dear Kate, who is our producer, wanted me to talk about something about division in America and kind of how the extremes are defining things and it's, and uh, how division is a problem. What are, what's a moderate supposed to do? And this has been an issue for a long time. I've got a friend who is a literal communist on the left. Uh, he wanted me, maybe still does, to write a book with him about how we're more alike than different. And I think it's true. I think that what animates uh, Americans is generally the same. We want good schools for our kids. We want safety. We want peace. When we go to Target, we or Walmart and see our friends and neighbors, you don't see signs of racial strife everywhere you go. People work and live together of all stripes. I mean, I live in a place that's very multicultural. You know, Texas, just generally speaking, is a um, majority minority state, which means that white people are far less than Hispanic, black and all the other races combined. We, we make up the minority and we're doing just fine. So it's not an issue. How is it then that there's this kind of notion of, of division and is it artificial? Is it just social media? Is it? And so I have mixed emotions about this because in the day to day, I think Americans are more, um, 
together than they are apart on most issues. Maybe it's just a, a difference here and there. However, I would say that through COVID, what we have seen is a real division between those who are willing to use the state against those with whom they disagree and those who believe in the traditional notions of freedom. And this division has taken the form of mask and vaccine mandates. Some part of the population was willing for the other parts of the population who disagreed to have their children taken away, to lose their jobs, all sorts of things. And now that looks like foolishness in retrospect. But the fact is, is that people were willing for that to happen. And these were our friends and neighbors. That to me indicates that there is a deep division amongst Americans about what it means to be American and what we do to defend ourselves. And so where I thought before all of this happened, I thought that um, people were more moderate. And I still think that, let me give you a concrete example. This makes people mad, but I think this is true. When it comes to abortion, I think the vast majority of people um, think that abortion is not a good thing. They think that people should plan their pregnancies, that they should be responsible, and that abortion is objectively killing a person and not to be done frivolously. But I also think the majority of Americans, and um, data proves this out, think that abortion should be legal for like the first trimester maybe the first four months. Well, that's a nuanced position that the extremists on both sides don't like because that means restricting abortion. And for those who believe it's killing a, a life, which I think even the people who are pro-abortion for that first trimester believe, they just think that it's uh, a smaller moral problem than forcing a woman to carry a baby to term that she doesn't think she can take care of. Now, I disagree with that. I'm a pro-life absolutist, but I understand that there's many people on the left and the right who believe that, okay? And it's my job to kind of convince people why this is not a good position to have because it's, I believe it's harmful long-term for society. For example, I think that, uh, that kind of cavalier view towards life translates to other cavalier views of life. Life becomes cheap. And so it becomes easier for adults to kill other adults, whether it be in gang violence because life is cheap or whether it be in euthanasia when people get older. So in Canada, basically, if you are not a perfect sound in mind, sound mind and body, you have enough reason to be euthanized and other people can recommend it to you. You might be at your lowest point as a person, physically dealing with something that can be overcome or emotionally overcome and your doctor or family member say, hey, have you considered offering yourself? You'd probably do society a lot more good dead. And somebody who's vulnerable might say yes. Abortion helps make that argument. Abortion helps people think that the only people who des who are deserving of life, liberty, and happiness are those who are 
physically able and functioning members of society, contributing members. It's a very utilitarian way of thinking. It's um, mechanistic in its way. And it is, in, a, in another sense, anti-human because uh, it makes it seem like the only valuable person is someone who is actively, you know, doing something. Well, we've got a lot of retirees sitting on their butt watching CNN all day. Are they worthless and should they not be part of society because they aren't contributing? Define contribution. And then define who gets to decide who and who is not worthy. Well, that's what we're doing with abortion. Who is and who is not worthy? Well, grandma, you're kind of a drain on my energy. And you're not really producing anything. And I don't really want to take care of you. You're interfering with my life. Have you considered euthanasia? <laughs> so, um. It's a very eugenic argument, and it's one that is increasingly being made. And I think if the economy ever gets worse or or certain situations happen where there's an economic collapse, that argument is going to be strongly made. And um, it's a dangerous argument because where does the line get drawn? Who And who gets to draw the line? And who gets to say, you're worthy and you're not? However, my point going back is I think from, you know, realistically that Americans think that abortion should be okay in the, in the first couple months. And then when the baby can feel pain and is bigger or whatever, however they decide it, um, you know, abortion should be illegal. Well, nobody at the extremes likes that. Another one might be uh, government payouts for certain things. So maybe we want to encourage certain behavior and we encourage certain things with tax credits or with benefits. Um, most people kind of recall at the idea of somebody losing a job and then not having insurance. They think that should be a right. Well, there's some debate about that and there's some nuance in there. Um, and there's a reason why nobody ever wants to cut Medicare. So I do think that there's certain areas where people are on the, are closer to the middle, but certain cultural things have made it so divisive that I don't know how we get from here to there. So for example, in education, if we're teaching children that if they're a certain race, they're inherently guilty. And if they're a certain race, they're inher inherently oppressed. I'm sorry, I, I can't compromise with that belief. There's just no way. It is, it's absolutely a dead end both for both of those children to believe that about themselves and other people. Not to mention, it's just a lie. You know, nobody, not very few people have everything handed to them and ha are live, live a privileged life in America. There are some few, but most people in America who do have privileged lives have earned that. And we want to encourage young people to work to earn that. And if they're told at the outset that either that, that if they get it, they got it wrongfully because they're privileged, or if they don't get it, they got it wrongfully because they're oppressed, you have children in dead ends. You have a mentality that will is is difficult. It's no different than uh, 
Hinduism saying, well, you're the bottom class. You're there because you sinned in some past life and you deserve to be there and you have no hope of ever escaping. So is moderation possible in the political world? Right now, I don't think so. I feel like, and this is what concerns me. I feel like we have a pendulum swinging back and forth. And if you've ever seen one, they'll go faster and faster and kind of get out of control. Um, I think that's kind of where we're at. And it doesn't bode well. If people start believing that the democratic norms don't work, the alternative is um, strength prevailing. And we'll see what happens with that. You know, in South Africa, for example, things are breaking down. Civil society will break down very quickly. It's barely hanging on by a thread right now there. And once again, we will see what happens. We've seen it in Ukraine uh, with Russia. And people want to point to one side or the other as villains. As far as I can tell, both sides, you know, Ukraine's defending its own territory. But the tactics both sides have engaged in have been utterly brutal and ruthless and uh, immoral. So how are we, how are we going to handle all of that? And that leads me to kind of talking about uh, what's going on in Russia with their possible strange new alliance with China. Scott and I talked about this last week. This seems to be something that some people seem to be in two camps. Either Russia is the villain or China is the vil villain. And I'm kind of the camp. Why can't it be both? <laughs> you have two communist, uh, former communists in the, you know, in the case of Russia, but with a dictator for all intents and purposes. And the same thing in China where she is, you know, uh, leader for life of a communist country. And Biden this last week talking about um, something potentially happening in Taiwan. Could something happen? Yes. Are we at a really weak point in America? Yes. Is China something to be worried about? I think 100%. Now, for a really good piece on this whole topic, in our last print issue, John Zhang wrote a great, great uh, piece about China, where they're at, what it would take to do what they want to do, and should be we be afraid or not? Now, his thesis is that we have about seven years of China building still before they can become dangerous. I don't know about that. Um, when you have so much depends on your enemy, doesn't it? If you are halfway to being fully equipped and you have an enemy, excuse me, who is may be equipped but has no will who's better off my big concern right now isn't china and it's not even russia it's the united states it's the people of the united states the people of the united states have been so misused and abused by their their trust and their faith by our those who govern that they're in a position uh to say no to former, you know, what was it? A skirmish? What is it? A ground level action. Like there's all of these euphemisms to describe war. 
Um, were we ever really at war with Vietnam? Was that ever really war? War was never declared in Iraq or Afghanistan. And yet we committed billions of dollars of equipment and people and time and American tax dollars to trying to bring democracy in places that is never going to happen. Or certainly not going to happen without at least a generation or two effort. And the American people simply didn't have the will for that. Or they had the um, common sense understanding that it wouldn't work there. And so why try? So around the world, we have this, uh, I don't know that things have been more um, unstable in certain places than we have seen. There's just a shakiness. But the biggest problem is in the United States. If um, Joe Biden, which it looks like he did, okay, okayed what he signaled he would do, which was to bomb the Nord Stream pipeline, um, that's an act of war. And that invites aggression. And so are we in a kind of new Cold War, but kind of warm? because there's actual bombs going back and forth between Ukraine and Russia? And could China get involved? Absolutely. You know, people wonder how worried should we be about these things? Well, I mean, we should at least be watching and paying attention and have a plan. The problem I have with this administration is I don't think they do. And the plans that they do have are stupid. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to attack the infrastructure of another, the number one in the world, nuclear power, which is Russia. Who thought that was a smart thing? And sure, the United States was trying to stiffen the spine of a weak-willed uh, German people who need energy. But why? Why are we doing this? Um. Well, we're defending the free people of Ukraine, most of whom are, are living in the rest of Europe now because Ukraine is open, you know, emptied out. So there's been things shifting. Taiwan is strategic because they make all of the chips for our computers and they and bomb systems and everything. The most advanced chips in the world are made in Taiwan. So far, that has strategically kept them safe from China because China needs those. The worst thing that could happen for them is for the Taiwanese to uh, sabotage their own factories, and then China's in big trouble. This is why in the United States, they're feverishly trying to develop these factories to keep us um, more independent. And... Ironically, that makes it more likely for Taiwan to have to work with China because if we make our own chips here, then we rely on Taiwan less and then China can take them over more easily and it doesn't bother us. So China's definitely getting more aggressive. They're sending flights over Taiwan pretty consistently. Uh, Kim Jong-il or Un now is uh, back to testing test flight bombs. Uh, something he didn't do at all during the Trump administration. So there's a lot of reasons to be concerned. China has a, you know, a good chunk of their population who are fragile food-wise. 
and they have been keeping people locked up and quarantined because of COVID. And that hasn't worked. And now everybody's getting sick and finally catching up to the rest of the world. So what's going to happen? I mean, China's in a weakened position. They're, they've had a real estate collapse. They're literally bulldozing buildings. The thing that concerns me about both China and both Russia is they both have a good reason to um, engage aggressively with the world because they are having diminishing reasons, things to lose. Uh, we all know what happens when the bully has nothing left to lose. What will he do? So should we be worried about uh, China? Yeah. Um, one of our writers who's much smarter on this topic than me thinks that we don't have anything to worry about in the short term. I actually disagree. I think that we need to be more careful. And I think we should be more careful also with Russia. Today, NATO, the head of NATO said that long-term the plans are to have Ukraine, Ukraine join NATO. Do the American people want this? That's what I want to know. And do they have the will for this? Do they want a world war? And why does Europe, why is Europe acting like nothing is happening? This is what I don't understand. Why is Europe, who is on this doorstep, not uh, having to be pulled into the only one who's actively fighting is Poland for obvious historical reasons. Why is the rest of Europe so lackadaisical? That I can't explain and that I don't understand. So, but the biggest concern I have is in America and our our will for this stuff and getting, um, so we're financially uh, dedicating future generations of Americans tax dollars to this war effort. Are we going to end up offering lives and um, American lives in Europe again? And I don't know what the answer is to that, but it is certainly concerning. Anyway, I am going to keep this episode shorter because Scott isn't here and he and I um, go back and forth. And so you'll just be stuck listening to me this week. So it's, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot. Uh, I was hoping to have, um, Paul Kanger talk, come on and talk. Um, we'll have him on one of these times soon. I'm excited about a guest speaker that we're having in the next two weeks, not this coming week, but the following week. Um, it's Lent season. There's some fun things we can talk about there. And so we have a guest coming up who will be talking about that. So if you haven't yet subscribed to us, please do. And subscribe to the magazine. Subscribe here on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you listen to this. Like us, share our podcast. And like I said at the beginning, go out and pre-order Armit Terrell's new book called How Do We Get Out of Here? And uh, I think that you'll really love it. And uh, we'll, we will uh, rack up book orders and that will help him get this book going. Anyway, and, and it's just going to be fun. If you have read anything that uh, any of his books or any of his essays, you, 
you will love this book. It, it's funny. And one of the things in politics that we are missing is this kind of humor. So I'm really excited about the book coming out. We need it more than ever. So thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week for the American Spectator and the Spectacle. This is Melissa McKenzie. We'll talk to you in a week. Mm-hmm.